Hello, welcome to the British History Channel with me, Philippa Lacey Brule, and to this bonus episode with my special guest, Gareth Russell. This is going out on Remembrance Sunday 2023, and we're talking about Armistice Day and the origins of the ceremonies that we see across the country each year on this day. If you've been here before, thank you for coming back. If this is your first time, hello, and thank you for checking out my channel. If you love British history, then you are definitely in the right place. You can find a library of historian interviews, virtual tours, and history documentaries on this channel. And you can also join me live each Wednesday at 3 p.m. for Tea Time History Chat. The 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of the year is always marked with a one minute silence for those who gave their lives in service to this country. The commemorations began at the end of World War I and as more conflicts have occurred and more men and women have died in service, they are remembered also. Remembrance Sunday, which is the Sunday closest to the 11th of November, holds special significance and we'll get into that with Gareth shortly. Gareth is a historian, author, podcast host, and correspondent. I have his two latest books in the background of my shot here, The Palace, From the Tudors to the Windsors, 500 Years of History uh, of Hampton Court. Uh, this was published earlier this year in the UK and some other countries, and very shortly will be published in the USA, Canada, and again, some other countries. Uh, also behind me is Do Let's Have Another Drink, The Singular Wit and Double Measures of Queen Elizabeth, The Queen Mother, published in 2022. Both of these books are have and are being instant hits uh, and also relevant to our discussion today. But Gareth is also the author of five more works of nonfiction, as well as two novels set in his home city of Belfast. He's the author of The Ship of Dreams, The Sinking of the Titanic and the End of the Edwardian Era. That was a Times Best Book of 2019 and a Daily Telegraph Best History Book of 2019. And the best-selling Young and Damned and Fair, a biography the biography, I would say, of Henry VIII's fifth wife, Catherine Howard, which was based on research for his postgraduate degree on the Queen's household from the University of Belfast. Gareth also appears regularly on television, radio as a royal expert and hosts his own podcast, Single Malt History, which you must check out. Gareth is a good friend and colleague of mine and is the tour historian on the tours that I run over at British History Tours. You can check out the website if you want to know more about that. You can also check out on my YouTube channel and on the podcast past interviews that I've done with Gareth. We've talked about the downfalls of Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, comparing and contrasting those in order to understand them better. We've talked about the myths surrounding the Titanic, and um, and also, uh, most recently, stories from his latest book, The Palace. So check those out after this. Uh, but today we're talking about Armistice Day. So hi, Gareth. Thank you so much for joining me from, for this special episode. Let's let's get into it. Right, so thank you so much for joining me for a, this is a bit of a special episode it's a bit of a bonus because we wanted to we, when we were together in the summer you said let's do an armistice one so thank you so much because um the history of this is possibly one that's not known as we get you know as we get further from its origins um so yeah let's let's do it great yeah so it's, it's an incredible um well, I suppose it's an incredible thing to think because it's been there for all of our lifetimes. There's almost 
In fact, I would say there probably is at this point no one alive who can remember when there wasn't um, a, a Remembrance Sunday mm-hmm. in the United Kingdom, and because it, it goes back to 1920, it was really two years after the end of the Great War that it was decided that something was needed to commemorate the dead, but also to give the grieving something to focus on, because a lot of the bodies could not be brought home. Mm. So let's get into the origins of it then, because like you say, so when, when it's now a ceremony I don't know what you would call it ceremony commemoration both I mean there's there's certainly a ceremonial component to the commemorative act and that goes right the way back I mean it it has always been centered on this um we call it the cenotaph but the memorial to the glorious dead as it's as it's proclaims on the cenotaph itself and it is overlooked by the home office and various government buildings and it's within walking distance of Westminster Abbey from Whitehall. So it, it it's part of, and there, I should point out, that's the central core Remembrance Sunday ceremony for the United Kingdom. But there are acts of commemoration that happens, you know, throughout the UK. It, it's quite rare to find a town or village that does not have some form of, you know, small or localised war memorial there. Because whilst the initial date was picked because it was the anniversary of the end of the first world war it's since come to represent the dead of all the, uh, the all the wars that britain has fought in since then so it started on the 11th of november 1920 and part of it as i say was to commemorate the dead but also to give the grieving in britain something to focus their grief on because of the hundreds of thousands who had died very very few had died in britain most of them had died in the trenches in belgium and france and the western front there had also been the eastern front and the mediterranean campaign in gallipoli there really i mean it was a global war but those were the core areas of death for british servicemen and and there had been because of the nature of war many bodies that were buried who were not identified during the war and then couldn't be identified after it ended in 1918 and if you go to these sort of beautifully preserved and uh, cared for allied graves in uh, France or Belgium today, you'll see a lot of these gravestones that simply read known unto God, which means that, that that person's legal identity was unfortunately not known at the time of their burial and certainly not at the time of their commemoration. And there was a lot of um, cultural anxiety and distress in Britain in 1918 and 1919 about how did the, the grieving families mourn the dead of that who, who had not come home and partly that's a very natural human instinct it's also social and cultural because although the king by this point was George V Britain's cultural attitudes towards death and particularly the grieving process were still predominantly Victorian so you went to graves that was the big thing you went to your grave and say uh, you know there are certain days of the year you go like it would be a tradition in quite a few parts of the British Isles certainly in Northern Ireland to have cemetery Sunday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday you go to on the the third day of the, Easter, of the middle day of the Easter weekend excuse me you go to graves so there's a lot of things that are geared around memorializing the dead through a grave and they couldn't do this so a plan was hit upon to pick an unknown warrior and he would be brought back and there'll be a grand reburial ceremony starting at, with the unveiling of this cenotaph memorial from Remembrance Day 1920, and then the body would be escorted to a suitable place of burial. I talk about the logistics of it in the palace because it's fascinating what lengths they went to to compartmentalize each section 
of how they picked the body, then how they extracted the body, how it was finally selected, then what coffin was used, then how they moved it. So no one from either team sort of cross-pollinated, if you like, with the others. No no one knew. So the grave diggers, for instance, were, were told to dig one body from each of the four main military zones uh, that had occurred in the Western Front. They were then taken, put on a train and brought to a British army base in France where they were wheeled in, covered in the flag. Then the people who brought them in went out one door and closed it and two more army personnel came in. They then picked one, not knowing which area it had come from. A funeral service was provided for the other three. Then it was put. It was taken under military escort to a chateau, given a, a guard of honour by the French army as a tribute to British allies. And then it was taken to a coffin that had been sent over um, on the king's orders from England. So at every stage, it was impossible for anyone to know who the unknown warrior actually had been. And that was the point. Now, initially, George V had been quite dubious about this. He and the Archbishop of Canterbury had concerns. And their primary concerns, well, from the Archbishop's perspective, his concern was that the uh, veneration of veterans was going to become something like a secular religion and that people were going to invest too much piety in it and people were going to uh, invest a morality in it that was he concerned would supersede Christianity. He had major concerns with the terminology, the glorious dead going on the war memorial in London, because to him it implied that you that someone could be rendered glorious by military service or by anything on earth, and that actually the dead are glorious only in Christ would be the, the teaching of, of uh, Christianity, uh, certainly Christianity at the time. And the king himself was ambivalent about this initially, but George V had always been, I think people have an idea of him as sort of quite stodgy and conservative, and he certainly was in his private life, but I think Jane Ridley's new biography of him, Never a Dull Moment, really shows how surprisingly attuned to public opinion he was. And he had made some decisions during the war in deference to British public opinion that he himself had found morally quite distressing. Probably the one he lived with for the rest of his life was that he had denied asylum to Tsar Nicholas II, his cousin, after there had been, you know, protests against the Tsar coming to Britain and Buckingham Palace had received a letter writing campaign to say the Tsar is not welcome, you know, he's deposed tyrant. You know, in fairness to George, the offer was only rescinded once he knew that Norway or Sweden or Denmark would take the Romanovs and, and then the, the revolution made that impossible. But he still lived with very difficult decisions that he had made throughout the war, including changing the royal family's surname to Windsor in reference to um, anti-Teutonic sentiment. So he really was a man who was very aware that you had to move with public opinion. You didn't have to bounce with it like a politician did, but you did have to be aware of it. And when he realized how much this unknown warrior plan meant to his people, he changed his mind and was actually instrumental in getting the Archbishop of Canterbury on board. But it was George V who then stepped in with convert zeal and said, I want the wood for the coffin taken from the Hampton Court forest. I want a crusader's sword brought from the Tower of London. You know, he he want, he helped organize the plan that the soil, the dirt that would go into the, the final grave at Westminster Abbey. Uh, would be taken from all four of the main battle areas in the Western Front. There was an immense amount of symbolism that went into it. So that, and then the coffin was unveiled at the same time as the cenotaph on this first memorial Sunday. And it's one of those things British school children learn uh, by rote, which is the 11th 
hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. Uh, you know, the, at 11 a.m. on the 11th of November, the First World War had ended with Imperial Germany's surrender. So that's when it was picked, that 11 o'clock on the 11th of November was picked for that first Memorial Sun Remembrance Sunday. Um, but the coffin was the unique feature of that first one because the king and his two eldest sons, the mercifully short reigning Edward, future Edward VIII, and the happily much longer reigning uh, King George VI, then Prince of Wales and Duke of York, are with their father. And the king acts as chief mourner for the nation and escorts the coffin through the crowds um, from the unveiling of the war memorial to the burial in Westminster Abbey. So that's sort of the unique feature that you have at the first one, but it continues and it has continued what, well, and this is the 103rd one that we will have had in the United Kingdom. For those abroad, there are two days. So there is the actual 11th, which this year was a Friday, I think. Yes. It will be. It no, will Saturday. Be Saturday. Saturday, sorry, Saturday. And so if it's not on a Sunday, there is a separate one. There is a second day, which is called Remembrance Sunday, which is when you will see the ceremonies take place again at the Cenotaph. And many churches throughout the United Kingdom will have a specific Memorial Remembrance Day service where, you know, for instance, in... um. Well, in my school, for instance, I went to, they would have read out the names of, of young boys who had gone away, who had fought in the wars and not come home. And then you would say, we will remember them. And in church services, they do the same with congregations. Often at local villages, they will call out the names of local villagers who didn't come back. And then there's a very moving, it always sort of gives you a slight shiver. They do the last post which is, which is what they used to play on the bugle to bring people home at the end of a day's service. And it's for all the young men um, and later in the Second World War, young women as well, who would not ever come home. Um, so the last post is sounded. So it's, and then the national anthem is usually sung. So it's an incorporation of patriotism, piety and sentiment that really goes into it. And that's been there from the start. You saying this before about each, um, you know, you really can't go to, anywhere village or you know no. and, and upwards without seeing a memorial cross or you know inside the churches plaques with the names yeah. of the the people who didn't come back um and some of the dates are, are just it's sort of the when you can see the closer toward the end of the war the date is as well where someone sort of they presumably died but they lost contact whatever it's just Oh, it, it is it's heart-wrenching um but yeah you can go to the smallest of villages you know I, I spend a lot of time in in Somerset and you've got really quite small villages with memorial crosses with a long list unfortunately it's yeah. like all of their young men didn't come back so you've got brothers cousins yeah. you know entire families so they would have their local hmm. sort of memorials but this was a this was a, a nationwide yeah. some, something that everyone could come together. Yes. So it was a national service of remembrance. And I mean, yeah, actually, if you go into Hampton, even, most churches have them. Even the chapel at Hampton Court has one. And if you look over, I think there's one in 1919. So they didn't get the news until months after the end of the war. Um, yes, it's this one was really supposed to be the national focal point and it's why you have it still happens today you will see mem female members of the royal family or more specifically members of the royal family who've not served in the armed forces will be on the balcony at the home office the, the one of the main government buildings that overlook it 
that goes back to the start when King George V's wife, Queen Mary, his mother, Queen Alexandra, uh, two of his sisters, Queen Maud of Norway, uh, Princess Victoria, and also his aunt, Princess Beatrice, they were all on the balcony. And you'll still see that today. You'll, you'll often see uh, with Queen Camilla, uh, Catherine, Princess of Wales, and Sophie, Duchess of Edinburgh, for instance, are often on the, on the balcony for it. And that really, you see representatives of all the major political parties are there, representatives of most of the devolved branches of British government are there. So you'll often see uh, representatives from the Northern Irish, Scottish and Welsh branch legislatures there. It is very much a British national focus. And, and increasingly, I mean, at the time, you would have seen representatives of all the major Christian denominations there. That has since widened to include representatives of most of the major religious denominations in the United Kingdom. To the best of my knowledge, I think also representatives of the humanist uh, associations have been included recently as well. To try and represent, or to represent the fact yeah. that the, the British forces are, are and allies a, are. Uh, uh, yeah. And so let's let's talk about the cenotaph a bit more then because that 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 was very uh, every element of this was so conscious and yeah. you know almost looking back you go well yes obviously you know soil from the different battlefields and, and you know right. but every it must have been so well thought through somebody really really gave well all of this yes i think britain does ceremony and the symbolism behind ceremony extraordinarily well. It's sometimes I have fairly limited patience with people say, oh, it's so old fashioned, get rid of it. And you think actually, um, simply because something doesn't fit the current mood or fashion or doesn't look like everyday occurrences is not a point to its demerit. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that you should toss tradition away simply when it ceases to become immediately uh, akin to the everyday seems to me to be misunderstanding the point of it and Britain has always been able to find the details that's, that um, that ceremony can offer so everything becomes symbolic and also practical at the same time so you need to fill the grave but it's important that there's it's not just growing from anywhere everything becomes symbolic of this catastrophic as you say loss of life where nearly every village in the country is impacted but the the cenotaph, the specific design for the memorial was something that the people went over with a fine tooth comb. And as I mentioned, the Archbishop of Canterbury was particularly unenthused by it. Partly because if you look at it, it's very stark. It actually looks more like sort of Art Nouveau, Art Deco. It's becoming slightly more modern. It doesn't look like an Edwardian memorial, really, if you look at it. It's not. It's very broodingly simple and there was also there's no religious insignia on it whatsoever and to the archbishop of canterbury that meant it, it bordered on pagan is how he, there's a letter i read where he says it is pagan and he felt even as i mentioned the term glorious had religious pseudo-religious connotations he did not like that at all so there were there was a great deal of um Yes, thought, but it was also fraught thought to, to rhyme moderately unintentionally. But you had people who were very, very invested in this, but you also had competing agendas. And this was a point in um, in British history where the Church of England was still overwhelmingly the majority faith and people regularly went to church on Sundays. But 
to the army's credit, they had made sure going through it that, you know, I mentioned the three bodies that didn't get picked were given a, a ceremony. All four of them had Church of England, non-conformists, which would have covered, say, Baptist, Methodists, and Presbyterians, and Catholic chaplains pray over them just in case. Um, I think, you know, by the 1930s, that there was a, a broader move in British public life to make sure a rabbi would have been included as well. But as of 1920, it was still predominantly Christian, but it was no longer uniquely Anglican. And that created a bit of tension for the Church of England as well. Interesting. And I suppose we should pick, uh, point out, if anyone doesn't know, that cenotaph means um, kind of an empty yeah. grave, purposely, yeah for that reason and 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 like you say non-denominational so I can see why the archbishop probably was concerned but you know th actually that has meant that it's uh, well we could go into this on a different tangent but has to this the test of time oh, in terms of absolutely you know. and also I mean you have to remember for instance if you were looking at say the Northern Irish contingent uh, um you know the overwhelming which the 36th division the 36th Ulster division at the Somme that was decorated for exceptional bravery, got very, very far indeed, and then was sort of close to obliterated by the German guns. But the majority of them were Presbyterian. If you looked at some of the battalions who maybe been serving from the north of England, the majority of them were Catholic. You know, it, the idea that, that it was an Anglican enterprise was just untrue. And there had already been steps, moderate steps towards this in Edwardian public life before the war. So, for instance, you would have seen, had you travelled on board British ocean liners, there would likely be a church service on the Sunday that would be, broadly speaking, Protestant, but it would be specifically non-denominational. It would not adhere to, say, a Presbyterian or Anglican or any form of um, specific denominational trend. And you were starting to see more and more, like, for instance, in schools, unless it was a Church of England school or a Catholic school, most schools would have a Christian ethos, but it would not be a specifically denominational ethos. So that had already started, and I think maybe for the Arch for Archbishop Davidson, the 1920 Remembrance Day service was this trend reaching its, its apogee. Am I right in thinking, though, that the Cenotaph was not thought to be something that was going to be permanent from the very start, that this was part of the first... yeah. Um, procession to in order because of course what we should make clear is the first procession was in order to bury the the unknown yes. soldier at Westminster Abbey so and there was a stop off at the cenotaph but that was not the structure we see now Am no right that they well they certain so they, there's been significant changes alterations and yes you're right it was not considered to be permanent none of it really to be fair apart from the tomb was considered to be permanent they weren't they weren't making it up not as they went along but it but it was a new service mm. and there's a great um coverage of the off the day from a journalist for the from the scotsman newspaper where he said where i think he you know the scots are even them sort of quite a, a solid solid conservative leaning paper conservative in tone and this extraordinary piece where the journalist says that you felt as if what had just been constructed was symbolic for the whole phantom host that, you know, and all of Britain's dead and graves are marked across the world. I mean, it really is sort of shiver-inducing stuff. And I don't think anyone from King George V downward had any idea how impactful it was going to be or that it would become not just, sorry, a permanent structure, but that also it would become a permanent fixture of British life. 
so yes, I think it was, I think part of the reason why we saw the the first service be a fu- essential, essentially a funeral and then it become a tradition was because of just how many people it visibly impacted. Apparently the first, so there's obviously the two minute silence or the minute silence, depending on where you are in the UK. But if you, according to this report, that first minute silence was not silent at all. People, the crowd around the cenotaph were sobbing. So it's, you You get a sense. I mean, and also just stuff from that day, Philippa, of the, you know, the king removing his hat, which they didn't do before. And the princes walking behind and the king, you know, putting a hand-picked bouquet of flowers on with a handwritten note to the soldier from him and Queen Mary. I mean, stuff that you just don't, you, this idea that the royal family was sort of, you know, more cold or at that time, I think, just because you're not huggers don't, doesn't mean you're, you're cold. And I think you get the sense of everyone just being caught up in realising how many... It's silly to say they didn't realize how many people died before the 11th of November 1920, but I think it's it, it that's the moment the phantom limb syndrome, for want of a better word, the, the phantom grief syndrome, whatever you want to call it, the moment it dawns that these young men are not coming back. The war, it, to some degree, is just a period of shock for Britain over and over again. And it's in 1920 that they really get a chance to take stock of what's happened. And I suppose, and then obviously the memorial services are reinvigorated after the Second World War, when you have a fresh list of, of, unfortunately, of names to add. And also, so the Second World War has something the First World War doesn't have, which is the Second World War is unambiguously a fight against one of the most monstrously evil regimes in history. So people can take, there, there's not the really very difficult question about the loss of the First World War, which is, was it worth it? And the answer, unfortunately, is no. Um, And it's a very, very painful thing even to say out loud, because, of course, you know, what we had members of the family die as well. We still have the memorial plaques and the letters of condolence that you receive in the First World War, but you 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 look at say imperial germany or austria hungary and you just don't think that they that they were bad enough to merit what happened to how many lives were given up and also the fact that nothing really changed after the first world war except the complete implosion of central european politics i mean it's it's really and the rise of communism and latterly fascism in the in the in the old empires so it it's it's a very difficult historical concept for us to grapple with and in many ways the second world war is one where you can focus on the importance of that war and the first world war is one where you simply focus on the scale of the loss so let's talk about the position in westminster abbey which was the 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 location for the grave so again a very carefully thought out um position so will you go into that? Yeah, so it's it's very close to the to the, the basically the main entrance. And it is in the nave. You it used to be it it was where kings and queens would have processed, everyone would have processed for the coronation or for any religious service. So if you where it is today, 
it would have been where Anne Boleyn or Mary the First or Charles the First or any of them walked across, walking up to be crowned. Um, and George V allegedly played a major role in picking that as the spot so that going into the Abbey from now on, you have to walk around it. It's impossible to enter Westminster Abbey from the main door without having to alter your steps and walk past the unknown warrior. And that was deliberate. And it also, to make it, and even at coronation, so the one in 1937, 1953, and 2023, uh, they, the kings and queens break, the monarch and the, and the consort break and walk around it. And it's the same at royal weddings held there. Its position also led to a new tradition, a tradition that arose from 1923. It's 100 years old this year. Um, which is that royal brides into the House of Windsor or of the House of Windsor will send their bridal bouquet to to be left at the tomb of the unknown warrior. There's a bit of confusion over how that started. So the, there are some the, the traditional person associated with it is is the future queen mother, who is that is correct. Some people say it's not true, and actually it was her sister in law, Princess Mary, the Princess Royal, who did it, which isn't true. She left her bouquet at the cenotaph. And the reason why this royal tradition started was when the future Queen Mother, then Lady Elizabeth Bowes-Lyon, arrived at the cathedral for her wedding to the Duke of York in 1923. She was on the arm of her father, Lord Strathmore. And as they arrived, they were starting the bridal procession and one of the clergymen fainted. And in this sort of uh, awkward lull while they were waiting for the clergyman to be helped, Elizabeth waited at the door with her father. And she had time to see her eyes sort of travelled up and she, she could see the um, the tomb of the unknown warrior. And on an impulse, she let go of her father's arm and ran over and set the bouquet down. Now, there is a one of the, the other mists, mistellings of this story is that she did it at the end as she was walking out. She didn't. It was much more impulsive than that. She set it, she set it down while she was waiting to go up. So she actually went up the aisle with um, with no with no bouquet. And part of that was that I think the way the First World War shaped the, the future Queen Mother and all of her generation is is not fully understood. I certainly didn't until I wrote a book on her and saw, you know, she was 14 when the war broke out. She was 18 when it ended. One brother was killed in combat. One was a prisoner of war. Two came back just absolutely annihilated by PTSD. And also her parents' castle in Scotland, Glam's, was turned into a military convalescent home. So she grew up seeing these young men come and be cared for and then sent back and maybe not come back um, a second time. So she was off that generation, that, sort of, that generation that I think bore the scars of the First World War for the rest of their lives. And there was an element with her and with that generation where I think sometimes they were presented, particularly once you reach sort of the 1980s and the 1990s, where, I mean, you'll see it, you particularly see it in some television shows, the idea of Princess Diana being the, the, the symbol of a very warm, loving future and the Queen Mother being this sort of pickled in aspic, embittered old dowager. And I think part of that is that the Queen Mother could sometimes come across as, as not being fully able to grasp what her grandchildren or their generation thought were problems. And Part of me, after researching what her teenage years were like, I got it. I understood um, 
you know, if someone's saying, you know, I, I don't feel cherished or I don't feel, you know, heard, and you're thinking between the ages of 14 and 18, every single day I heard someone that I knew died, then that, you know, you you will build up a certain um, toughness. But also what I was surprised it it developed in her was a toughness and a softness, which is that she she really felt very strongly about how the veterans had been let down when they came back and that Britain hadn't provided the jobs that they needed for them. And there's a wonderful, she could always spot the faces of people who'd been in her parents' house as, as patients. And there's a great story. I think it's Ernest, I can't remember his surname, but Ernest was um had been had been one of the wounded soldiers at Clams. And in the 1930s, so this is about she by this point she's married into the royal family, and she spots him in the crowd. She makes a beeline over for him and says, Hello, Ernest. And they start talking. And um Ernest loved the countryside, but when he came back from the war, you know, the agricultural recession had kicked in and he ended up having to get a job in the shipyards, which obviously is, you know, it, it's paid work, but it's it's very much the definition of industrialized work. And then um, as many, you know, people who are interested in ocean liners will know the Great Depression of 1929 really knocks the bottom out of the transatlantic industry and shipbuilding. And a lot of it stops. And he was telling her this and said, you know, well, I'm on, you know, I'm unemployed again, but getting work where I can. And and so she got his address and sent uh, the money for all of his children's school uniforms and started sending um, sort of, you know, like she was very careful. I, I thought this was brilliant. She sent um, hampers of food but they would always there would be some things like ham and bacon and sausages but also there'd be some slightly ridiculous things like a bit of marmalade or so it didn't it looked like a gift not charity mm. um because some you know you have to be i think she was very mindful and respectful of the, the pride of people who had served and um and not belittling or emasculating or anything like that i mean she was very much a woman of her time but um when she and her husband were given Windsor Great Park, which Royal Lodge, obviously, where the Queen Mother would later die. They were given this home, and she immediately wrote to Ernest and said, I need a gardener. Will you come and bring the family? So he came, and she gave him a cottage in the grounds, and he tended her garden until he died in the, in the 1960s. And his niece and daughter ended up working in the kitchens, and the other... It, it was She very much... I think she carried a sense, yes, of toughness, but also tenderness and obligation from those years. And that's why that that generation to me, I think, are, are, are were, excuse me, utterly remarkable. But but back to the, the bouquet, she does this, and then it really starts the tradition and, and the mo it carries on to the present. So if, for instance, you are like the future Elizabeth II or the future Catherine Princess of Wales, and you get married in Westminster Abbey, you, you can do it, you know, there and then. Um, or you send it back immediately afterwards. If you're like, say, um, the, the late Princess of Wales, uh, Diana Princess of Wales, who got married at St. Paul's, or um, Meghan the Duchess of Sussex, who got married at Windsor, then you you send the bouquet after the service and it's still brought back to Westminster Abbey. So that tradition, I'm trying to remember which of the York princesses was married last. That's very poor of me. I think, uh, well, either Beatrice, I think it's Eugenie was the, the, the last, the most recent royal princess to get married and she did the same thing with her so that tradition like many of the things actually weirdly sort of loop it back that we've been talking about a lot of the stuff that was improvised then becomes tradition 
and the Queen Mother's bouquet and the Chum of the Unknown Warrior is just part of that, one part of that. I suppose the improvisation is actually that is what gives it its power, and therefore, yeah, that that's you know it's it's not frivolous. It there's a, there's a lot of emotion and th- and I can't say thought. Sorry, because it is. Uh, it's, it's yeah, no, I know. I know what you mean, though. I I got I want... visceral. Yeah, it's a it's a it's it's a it's the soul pulp um palpitating a bit. I remember I got quite cross once at a dinner party in New York, and the other chap there was was British as well. But uh, he his point was that he sort of was he was. Uh, Essentially, he was saying that things, memorials, this is to a more recent tragedy, but he essentially was saying that, you know, sentiment was ridiculous and that his implications, one of my pet peeves, that the more intelligent they are, the more the more intelligent you are, the more detached from sentiment you should be. And I just don't find that true at all. I think there is such an important visceral sacred space that we should have for sentiment i think that is incredibly incredibly important and i don't take any of that lightly and that to me the, the those memorial services that we have in the united kingdom have really beautifully synthesized the the sentimental and the solemn i think that it has done it very very well and it does come from what we've talked about moments of incredible forethought and attention to detail, like the, how you select where the bodies will the body will come from, and and what the, that first ceremony would follow structure wise. But it also is the impulsive things like Elizabeth Boslyn sending the, the bouquet over, uh, or the or the crowd sobbing as the king led the the coffin through the crowd towards Westminster Abbey. It's a perfect mixture of, of thought and impulse, head and heart. It's what uh, keeps us from being machines as well. I don't think the more intelligent you are, the more machine-like you should no, be. No, of course not. I also just find it, I mean, this is sort of a more personal point, but I find the idea that, um, I find it a bit feeble, if I'm totally honest. I think if you are, you don't have to agree with all the sentiment, but if you're frightened or sort of repulsed by communal emotion, I think that tells you a little bit about what you think about um emotion in general but also i think it's uh, i think it usually comes with a whiff of snobbery if i'm totally honest mm. yeah well it's a bit less human than 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 yeah. i would be comfortable with well totally. i should i should point out then that you can that people can read more about um the queen mother yeah. and that story particular in in your book about the queen mother which i have behind me that's why I yes so this this was an interesting little um I had so that story, the story of her her years in the First World War is there. Um, but I didn't put it in, I put it in because it was in the Hampton Court book, then it was I had to trim it down for do let's have another drink. So her her first world war experiences, which I think um I didn't I think we'll send you before we started, I did an interview with Penelope Wilton, who's playing her in the West End, and a lot of what she feels shaped her is the first world war i think we always think it's mm. the second but it is it, it's totally fascinating i've been thinking about it from that interview and then in preparation for this one so yes first world war experiences are in jail let's have another drink and the story of, of the unknown warrior and hampton court's role in it is in the palace so perfect so um get both everybody <laughs> <laughs> is what i was saying <laughs> and i would you second that. <laughs> so... absolutely <laughs> well thank you so much for that my pleasure. Um, Thanks for having me. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Thank you.